And now, business games. Welcome to Business Games, a podcast where we use game theoretic thinking and we apply it to business to help you make better decisions under uncertainty. Season one is the experimental one. So it's all about business experiments. And this is the introductory episode to season one. So how best to set up the topic? It seems fair to say that the number of articles in the business literature around uh, experiments in business has sort of increased recently. A um, March-April 2020 issue of HBR was dedicated to experiments. Uh, it had several features and a cover dedicated to, to experiments in business. An unscientific research on the HBR shows, another article, a book, and a podcast in 2020, two in 2018, one in 17, four in 16, right? So at least since 2016, we've got um, the largest amount of uh, business experiment articles published on HBR. Same for MIT Sloan Review. We've got a March 21 article on experiments for work arrangements. We've got a June 20 article titled, Want to make better decisions? Start experimenting. We had one in 2018, two in 16, and so on. So basically we've got this increased appreciation of the value of experimentation for business, apparently. Which to me personally leads to a couple of questions. Um, in no particular order, but there, there are kind of three main ones, right? Why now? That's, that's question number one. Surely an idea of experimentation in science is nothing new and business had existed for, you know, for, for a while now. So uh, somewhere in the last hundred years, business people must have figured out that it's good to test their ideas, for example, before going on all in on a, on a venture. So what's so special about now? Two, if experimentation is really as great as they say, uh, can't we just experiment our way to, you know, a lot of money? Uh, to success. So surely we would be able to just A-B test literally everything. That proposition seems silly, so let's try to unpack what is it about experimentation that's maybe not, you know, like what are the limits to experimentation. And finally, um, okay, which is probably of the most interest to the audience, is the what's in it for me questions like how do I use or in which contexts do I use experiments and what, what, what type? So, in the inaugural season of Business Games, we look at all things experimentation. Over the next half dozen episodes, we'll talk to academics, corporate C-suite, consultants, and small business owners to learn in what context and how best to experiment in business. Hell, this podcast season is itself experimental. And who better to introduce this topic than a strategy iconoclast, my good friend, the author of Strategy and Praxis newsletter, which is a great newsletter that you should all subscribe to. Internationally renowned strategist, keynote speaker, and a complexity management type. Ever generous and insightful, JP Kesslin. JP, thank you for doing this. Thank you, Andre, for that uh, suspiciously terse introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, right, so uh, the reason why I wanted you in particular to open this mm -hmm is in one of the recent, uh, or maybe not so recent, um, depending on when this podcast comes out, episodes of Strategy and Praxis newsletter, you did talk about safe-to-fail versus fail-safe experiments. And you, in particular, set it up in the context of emergent strategy. So why don't you unpack this? Basically, the floor is yours. 
Well, I mean, what you first or what we first need to establish is basically where I'm coming from, right? And that is to just very briefly introduce complexity theory because it basically sets the scene for everything else that follows. So historically speaking, me being a strategist, the strategic discourse, which of course has to do with experimentations, exactly to your point, and uh, to a degree at least, uh, it tends to come out of old markets and old ways of doing things. Um, and it hasn't really been updated with the latest science. And latest science is complexity science, which basically explains why a couple of things that we've been doing historically is not necessarily working. It explains why you know things don't go to plan. And so just to introduce what it is, um, in nature, you have three kinds of systems. And these systems exist within organizations as well. So you have ordered systems. So ordered systems can be either clear. So basically, A leads to B, and everyone knows that it does so. And doing um, A, A will again lead to B, and it'll, it'll basically lead to B every time, right? Everything is predictable. Then order systems can also be complicated. So complicated means that doing A will lead to B, C, D, or whatever else. It'll lead to that every single time. And it may not be obvious to everyone, but if you bring in an expert, uh, an expert they will be able to tell you that if we do this, then probably one of these things will happen. And both of these systems, again, th these are order systems, and they are there are sort of linear causalities. Then we get to what is called complexity and complex systems. And complexity is often taken to be a sort of a higher state of complicatedness, right, in, in sort of traditional language or common language. It's not that at all. It's something altogether different. So complex systems are systems in which there are no linear causality. So if we do A, then all kinds of stuff will happen. Um, and a small input may have a large output or vice versa. And there will be a bunch of unforeseen consequences. Now, that kind of system is not causal, but it is dispositional. In other words, what that means is that the system as a whole is sort of predisposed to act a certain way, right? So we cannot predict or forecast necessarily, but we can look at sort of rough probabilities. Um, and to take a, a practical example of that in marketing, um, so we know that customer bases are, they follow what is called negative banal distribution. So basically what it means is that in any given time for any given company, you're gonna have a few customers who are gonna buy you a lot and a lot of customers is gonna buy, who are gonna buy you a little, and then most customers won't buy you at all, right? And then basically customers move within these sort of different groups, it's called the law of biomoderation. Now, so with that, with that we can predict, that's sort of the probability. We know that as that prob probability distribution will exist, right? But what we cannot predict is what buyer will buy, what, when, how much, and so on. Um, and then lastly, we have chaotic systems and chaotic systems, basically, um, there are no constraints, up is down, you know, they're completely, um, well, chaotic, literally. Uh, and luckily, they don't exist too often in, in um, organizations. So when we are talking about, to go back to experimentation on, and safe fail versus fail safe, it, it, it basically depends on what kind of system you're in, right? So if you're working within an ordered system, so let's say that that might be, um, so manufacturing processes, or let's say the, the last mile of a supply network or supply chain, that's quite ordered, that's quite predictable. So basically you can do fail-safe experimentation there uh, or close to it anyway. Whereas if you're working with complexity, so that would be new product development, um, innovation uh, and so on, then basically you need to run parallel safe to fail experiments instead. So that is the massive shift between the sort of traditional 
Newtonian physics kind of way of doing things, as opposed to what one might call the quantum mechanics kind of way of doing things. In other words, the you know parallel stuff. Um, so that was a bit of an off piece, but but basically that that explains a bit about the sort of safe fail fail safe dichotomy. Okay, so um, I will try to translate it into the language that I'm used from analytics, right? So if uh, uh, there is a lot of discussion about, uh, and by the way, there will be a, uh, a season dedicated to, to data and analytics, uh, as well as, as I want to build up to the complexity um, uh, season as well. So we'll, we'll deep dive into that uh, fuller. Uh, so in, in analytics, whatever the data that you have, right, in a stable system, and this is what you mean by the ordered system. So in a yeah. stable system, you can optimize until the very, uh, you know, the, the, the... Yeah, the nth degree, yeah. Exactly. So because the whatever happened historically uh, is a good predictor for whatever is going to happen next. Mm. It's it's a stable system. In an unstable system, a, a lot of different things can happen. So so there is a um, thing that I wanted to introduce, which is the two types of uncertainty. That is... Uh, so that concept is is new to me. The naming is new to me, kind of intellectually it isn't. So there are two types of uncertainty. One is called aleatory uncertainty and one is called epistemic uncertainty. Epistemic uncertainty, and I'm reading a notes from the university. I will, I will put the link um, to, into the show notes. Epistemic uncertainty derives its name from the Greek word um, epistem, which is basically knowledge, right? So therefore, epistemic uncertainty is presumed to derive from the lack of knowledge. And this is the kind of thing that the more data you have, the more knowledge you have, the more, the, the, the more you can reduce the uncertainty. So hypothetically, you can reduce that uncertainty to zero. Aleatory uncertainty, on the other hand, and derives from the word from the Latin word alia, which is translated as the rule of the dice. So that is the inherent uncertainty which derives from the internal randomness of phenomena. And that quite nicely relates to what you've been talking about uh, in, in quantum mechanics versus physics, where Newtonian physics is quite predictable. You can write formulae and you will know what will happen, versus quantum mechanics, which is all about treatment of probabilities. Yeah. And this type of uncertainty in the, in the uncertainty literature and what you've been talking about, they're, they're to me, they're kind of related in different language of talking. But ultimately, you have these two concepts. Mm -hmm. One deals with you are able to find the right answer if you search hard enough or if you have enough data. And the other one is no matter how much data you have, yeah what uh, processing capability, you will just never be able to find the right answer. Yeah. Help me, dear listener. You're our only hope. Well, hello there. Thank you so much for listening. I need your help with three things. First, give us a rating of five on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this right now. We're new, and every rating helps us move up the algorithmic food chain. 2. Tell your friends about us. Post about us on social. Follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. 3. Consider subscribing to Business Games Premium. But let me tell you first about this episode. This is the episode that one of the top CMOs in Australasia endorsed in a post on LinkedIn. This is also our only full episode available outside of the paywall, a sort of showcase of things behind the paywall. Now you might be wondering, 
Why would I give money to the premium version of this thing? That's a good question. I could tell you about the premium features like early bird, full interview episodes, full transcripts and extra weekly deep dives with me into one theme of that week's interview. But those are features. And you might be skeptical. I could tell you of how this podcast that's only three weeks old is already accepted at one of the largest New Zealand publicly listed companies as an official education resource. Now that's cool and provides you with social proof. But it might still not be for you. So I'm going to just ask you to support us to reach critical mass in order for us to give this project all the attention it deserves. Farnham Street is what we can be. Maybe better. Why is this better than other reasons? And to be fair, if you were convinced already with the features and the social proof, that's great. But if you weren't, well, consider this. Think of the very first people who discovered Farnham Street or Stratechery, gave these projects their support and told everyone else about them. Wow, what a cool feeling. Rate and review us, tell your friends in real life and on social. And be our angels by giving premium a try. Thank you. Where one of the things that you and I connect on is that you're railing against context-less, context-free advice. Like, you should do this, regardless of anything, right? Yeah. Whereas in the real world, there are trade-offs, there are different contexts, there is what works for one actually could be quite counterproductive to the other. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the problem is that a lot of times the let's call it the data crowd, they tend to presume, it seems, that we're looking at Gaussian distributions and you can basically sit in the middle. So you have an average, right? Uh, whereas in complexity you have fat tails and it's slightly different. The tradition, I mean, you, you basically hit the nail on the head there with uh, Newtonian versus quantum mechanics. And for those of you who are listening, who don't, who are not sure what we're talking about at the moment, which is fine, uh, understandable. Basically, the difference is this, right? So in Newtonian physics, going back to what is called Laplace's demon, everything is predictable. All the laws of the universe are known. Therefore, if you have enough computational power, then you basically can predict everything that's going to happen in the future uh, in detail. In quantum mechanics, everything is a function of a wavelength, which basically means that there will always be different things happening within that wavelength. It's actually what led Einstein to say that God is playing dice with the universe. But you're talking about probabilities as opposed to certainties. Now, the more ordered a system is, the more you can predict it. The problem with trying to model a complex adaptive system is that the only way to do that with all the permutations and so on is for the model to be the system itself. So it's inherently impossible. Uh, now, you can, of course, gather data and you can sort of, uh, again, look at probabilities and so on and so forth, but you can never make guarantees. And that's the, the big difference. And, you know, the way to deal with uncertainty in complexity in systems in which, you know, no matter how much data you collect, you basically cannot know if you do, if you do A, then what will happen is, again, you run parallel safety fail experiments. And that's the way to do that is, is to run experiments that are each and of themselves coherent. So basically you need to be able to have some sort of coherent idea for why you want to do something. It can be, they can be, or actually a couple of them should be sort of mutually contradictory, but they need to be 
uh, coherent. And then each of these experiments, you basically give everyone a, a very small amount of money, and then you look at you know what seems to work and what doesn't seem to work, and then you scale accordingly. And if you then get a feel for, okay, actually, this seems to be scaling, then you try to move it from complexity to complicatedness, and you use you know techniques like Scrum or whatever else. But if you're working with, again, going back to, you know, for example, manufacturing and that kind of thing, then you can basically predict more about what's going to happen. So therefore, your investments might look slightly differently. Um, you can run zero base if you want anyway. But um, I mean, it's just risk versus reward. The risk is going to be clearer or more easily grasped. And therefore, you can basically measure investments accordingly. If you're working with complexity, again, you just the best thing is just put a small amount of money into each thing and then you scale the stuff that works. And dampen the stuff that doesn't work, obviously. Okay, so talk about the uh, safe to fail experiments. Uh, I would like you, you to discuss uh, Blumhouse versus Marvel because I think that's a really visual example, and I, you know that that was I was actually a bit jealous that you wrote it, and and because <laughs> uh, that that's a really cool example. Right. So the difference between Blumhouse and Marvel, or you can take it all the way to Disney if you like to. So basically, you're looking at two kinds of, of movie houses or production houses within the Hollywood sphere, so to speak. And they each have completely different business models. Most of you who are listening now, either yourself or maybe your children, know of the big, you know, the movie behemoths, the, the guardians of the this and defenders of the that, and then, you know, that kind of stuff. Superhero movies, the big ones. And basically, for th those kinds of movies, um, you are quite certain what the demand is going to be. So you, you invest up, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars into them, and you need to make a lot of money back because basically the equation is such that a movie needs to make back twice what it costs to produce in order to break even because of you know distribution costs and, and marketing and so on. And for certain companies, when you've reached a certain height, a certain size, that's fine. The problem is that if you try to run such a big experiment or such a big project and it fails, it can basically screw over the entire studio. So that's what happened, for example, with Kingdom of Heaven. And I think it was United Artists, which was this you know, big epic that basically didn't work at all. And the company almost went bust uh, as a result. Now, Blumhouse is different because what they do is they give very, you know, relatively speaking, but very small amounts of money to a bunch of, of directors and producers. And then they're, they're basically told, okay, you go do whatever you want to do. And then, you know, it's fine. And they then take that movie and they sort of distribute it and market it the way that a big studio would. And so when the, like, what's called the Avengers Endgame was the one, the, the big one. I think that that took, was it three point something billion dollars, which was a, an ROI of was it three point something, 3.7. And no, that's no, 1.8, you said. Yeah. Uh, and then you have um, the Blumhouse stuff, which is, for example, the Black, uh, what's it called? The Black Cake Clansman and uh, a couple of moves like that. And Whiplash, Get Out, yeah. uh, Paranormal Activity, Paranormal which Activity the Invisible Man. Paranormal Activity had a, an ROI of, what was it? Two, something like 2,000? 12,000? No, 12,933. Oh, yeah. 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 You know more about the night. Uh, I'm reading it from your newsletter. Yeah. Way, I so I found it, my it notes. It was a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> um, but basically, the point is that what, what they do is that they invest a small amount of money into a bunch of projects. And then the ones that, that make it basically pay for all, all the ones that, that don't. Yeah. Actually, if you look at their track record, they have surprisingly few movies that didn't make it, which, which is interesting. 
but basically the point is that if you invest you know let's say 300 million dollars they need to make at least 600 back right in order to break even whereas blumhouse are investing maybe you know fifteen thousand dollars upwards and then getting that money back is quite easy actually uh, for Marvel, actually, anything that's below one billion is is, yeah. is not a success, right? So, uh, which which is really interesting. Yeah. So the um, that seems to me very similar to the VC approach to mm -hmm. startups, right? It's it's you know you invest a little uh, into a bunch, and basically they expect what is over nine you know nine out of ten to fail. Yeah. It's just that that one that succeeds succeeds so much that it pays for all the failures. Yeah. No, I was going to say yeah. I mean, that's basically if you look at startup. Um, because startups are quite sort of romanticized in the media. I mean, not, between 95 to 97% of all startups fail. So, you know, if you're hitting one out of 10, that's still a, quite a good ratio. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about some, I'm going to throw at you some contexts because I came up with, you know, a pair of, uh, of contexts and um, let, let's see which, which one of the, which ones of those are of interest yep. to the experimentation. So maybe I'll riff on one. So we've got a couple of a couple of pairs, right? So big versus small. Yeah. What works for big companies does not work for small companies, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. The same as the startup versus established. Um, yeah. And and I've seen that as well in in my career uh, across several continents, being embedded in in large corporates where which which all kind of tried to uh, act as as, as startups. Um, then we've got product versus service. I don't know whether that's relevant, uh, whether what you can experiment with service versus product. Yeah, I was gonna say that's quite a difficult one. Yeah. yeah. B two C versus B two B. Online versus offline. That's a good one. Chaotic versus complex versus uh, uh, ordered. That's that we've covered. Mm -hmm. Then we've got operational efficiency versus strategic choice. Right. Yeah. I will. Just let me kind of set it up a little bit. I'll, I'll riff on on a couple of those, and then you can choose yeah. either to follow that or talk about something else. So, it seems to me, and I've been uh, reviewing a number of articles, which which I'll summarize in a corresponding newsletter as well, that will come with with this podcast. Um, it seems to me that most of the experiments that are being covered in the literature, and maybe that explains the blow up in the recent years. They seem to cover online experiments, yeah. uh, you know, by the likes of Google, Microsoft, Amazon, what whatnot, and most of them seem to be of the operational efficiency type. So it's like, do we uh, get a blue background or a white background on a checkout, right? So ultimately, the things that are like, okay, fine, why wouldn't you experiment it, right? But the, the the whole discussion is presented a little bit like this is new and it you know previously all of these decisions were made by managers and now you know we we, we can experiment. So to me it's like well duh I mean you know why would you argue about blue background where you know just yeah. test it okay fine, but that's operational efficiency and and, and vast majority of books and articles in um, the business discourse tend to be of the operational efficiency kind you know these. Follow this five step and, you know, the best companies are doing this, therefore you should do that, which is kind of like, okay, but then everybody looks the same, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So, and, and that's the operational efficiency side. It's not really a kind of strategic choice. So, that's my riff on it, you know, slash sort of a hint of a question in there. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. So, these contexts, right? Okay. Yeah. So, you go. Well, I mean, yeah. So if we're looking at historically how companies have worked versus how one might work these days, especially when it comes to operational efficiency, 
I mean, historically, again, you'd have companies that were more bureaucratic and perhaps hierarchical than they are these days, which basically means that ultimately any decision have to go via your managers, right? Now, this creates a bit of a lag effect in the organization, but that was basically fine because the markets didn't move uh, as fast as they, as they do today. Now, in terms of the sort of trying out a new lighting side or the, the blue versus red or whatever else, Allowing that, I mean, the digi- I hate to talk about the the, the sort of the speed at, of change because the speed of change is a lot slower than people think. But if, if you're looking at what one can do in terms of, of um, with, I mean, with digital tools, tools these days, then yes, you can experiment a lot faster and you can try things out. Now, if each of these things have to go via your boss, then, you know, it basically defeats the purpose. So that's what digital, digital is slightly different from quote unquote traditional in that sense. The problem with a lot of operational efficiency, if we just if we're just looking for efficiency is is one, it's again, it it tends to uh, limit effectiveness. Yeah. But the other thing as well is that um, you know, you mentioned A B testing. If you take A B testing too far, you end up in porn. I mean, you literally do because yep. you're just you're always you're always looking for, okay, so what's what are the users sort of attracted to and ultimately the further you go the sort of the deeper you're going to get and the darker things are going to be uh, and eventually you come up with like the basic primal instincts right yep. so you know you, you need to basically draw the line somewhere and then in complexity you talk about the difference between eternal boiling and premature convergence so uh, eternal boiling is basically when things are moving so fast that you can never actually get anywhere you're trying to run an experiment but the context changes so quickly that you you don't have time to finish it right whereas premature convergence is, is the sort of the, the the opposite where you you finish your experiment and you focus on one specific experiment at the cost of an, of others so to speak before you've had time to test test the other ones. And the A-B testing stuff tends to land in the ladder because again, if you find something that's working and you focus all your efforts on that and you're just A-B testing, then again, it might not be the, the, the experiment itself that's working, but actually the sort of the stuff you add on top that are just, I mean, it's gonna be diminishing returns probably. And also it might be that there are other solutions that actually would have been uh, better, but if you're if you're doing digital stuff, the, the website stuff, then by all means go ahead and do it because usually you're looking for what are called positive asymmetries. So the stuff that's cheap to test but has a huge upside. One of the more famous ones is the I can't remember this the 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 sum. So take this with a, a grain of salt. But let's call it the thirty million dollar button. It probably was more than that, but anyway. So basically, what happened was that a website shifted the registration page from before you made the purchase to after it. So basically, all of a sudden, all your, your people on your econ site were allowed to sort of essentially finish the purchase and then register, right? And this, in a year, led to an upswing of $30 million of revenue. I think it was more than that, but it might have been $300 million. But basically, the point is that if you read about that, if you're running an econ site, may, I mean, maybe you shouldn't expect to ha- see a, a similar swing in your revenue. But it's really cheap and easy to test. So why not try it out? You know what I mean? Yeah. So it becomes a sort of uh, you know cost versus benefit of anything else, and of course that ties us back to operational efficiency. But anyway. Oh, one one note about the, the the premature conversions. I guess if I were to translate it into mathematical terms, and and then again talk about linearity versus you know versus nonlinear effects. 
my understanding is that in complexity, not only nonlinear effects, but but there could be all sorts of different things. It's it's it, you know not even monotone effects. Like you could have local maxima and and, and local minima. So you could converge on that. Mm-hmm. Whereas like if you were to to move quite far from that, you could attain possibly a much better result. But you would never do it with a gradual kind of experimenting out because of that local local optimum. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and I think that that's a that's a, a good point. Again, I mean, if you're looking to run parallel experiments, you know, as I said before, some of them should be sort of mutually not exclusive necessarily, but sort of contradictory. Mm-hmm. So that takes us from the local to the well, far edge or, um, to a degree. Yeah. But the other thing that is important to sort of note about complexity is that the, the system itself has its own behavior. So the very easy explanation of this, and complexity scientists are just going to disagree because it's too simplistic, but for the sake of the argument, it, it sort of illustrates the point, right? So if you if you are observing an ant, the behavior of, of an individual ant is quite easily predictable, even though it's sort of slightly random or it appears slightly random. But the thing is, you cannot extrapolate that into the behavior of the colony because the colony has its own behavior, right? But similarly, you cannot go in the other direction. So you cannot actually look at the behavior of a colony and therefore predict what's going to, you know, the the behavior of an individual ant. So there's no sort of aggregation and there's no reduction in complexity. So if you are running experiments within complexity, it's really difficult to presume that if we just do this one thing, it's going to scale. Rather, it might, but it might not. And again, you, you need to try different things out within that. Um, the traditional strategic view is very much one of sacrifice, going back to what we were talking about, strategic choice versus operational efficiency. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Well, it's fine if you're working with the order for one, but it's also fine if you're a strategy consultant and you don't have to bear the brunt of a potential sort of uh, failure, bear the cost of it anyway. It's really easy to say to someone, yeah, you need to put all your money on this horse, this single horse, if you don't have to bear the cost of it. But for the person who does, it's a completely different thing. And so if you're working with complexity, really your your goal is not to, well, this idea of, of sacrifice is not to sort of cut away things necessarily, although you kind of have to prioritize, of course, always in, in business reality, but you're basically looking to move from equiprobability, right? And that's mm-hmm. a quite a significant shift in, in your approach to experimentation. Describe equiprobability for the listener. So equiprobability is a situation in which every, every outcome is equally probable. So you're trying to move away from that. So the difference is between the traditional, yeah, we're going to guarantee you a result to we are going to increase the odds of something happening, right? But we are aware at the same time that a 99.99% certainty or, or sorry, probability of something happening is not a guarantee of it actually coming to fruition or coming to pass, right? It can, can still fail even at 99.99%. Um, Probability, which is, for example, just to take a sort of a, 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 an example from the present at which we are living or in which we are living at the moment, which is, of course, COVID. Yeah. So you're seeing, you know, with the vaccines that that obviously millions and millions and millions of people are vaccinated. And then every now and again, the vaccine won't work. Right. And then you have a lot of outcry about that and this, that and the other. But again, the fact of the matter is that just because you're vaccinated is not a guarantee, 100% guarantee that you will not get COVID, unfortunately. But it's just, you know, that's what it is. 
And it's the same thing with with um, with experimentation in general. Like again, we're just trying to improve the odds of a certain outcome. We're not trying to guarantee anything because we can't guarantee anything unless it's ordered and everyone knows that it's a guarantee. Uh, which is usually, if if it's that obvious, then usually you don't have to run experiments. You just do the thing, and everyone knows it's going to yeah. work. And also, as we discussed, there are limits to knowledge acquisition, right? So yeah. so it doesn't like you might you might run experiments, right? But uh, so a couple of things again in a stable system fine you know and frankly speaking you might not even need to run experiments because you might have enough data on a let's say on a manufacturing process right you might have enough data on it to to optimize there so uh, there, there, there is even a trade of if you have data and if your system is stable uh just use that yeah. you, you can improve things right if your system is stable you don't have data well, okay, try different things, see which one moves you in the right direction, then then optimize there. That's fine. If your system is uh, you know suffers from lots of different things, then, as you said, you have different types of experiments. Um, oh, let me step aside. so the the complexity bit and and we we covered it in, in some of our calls, uh, right? the there is possibly a tendency to get disheartened, right? to go like, okay, well, you know it's 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 complex, so I can't predict anything, right? So it's like, what's the point? That's not true. You, you you can do something, and um, one of the one of the things, as as we discussed in the uh, in the Blumhouse case, um, you can run certain types of experiments which are which are uh, safe to fail, not fail safe, right? Yeah. Uh, which, which is a distinction. Uh, talk a little bit more about this sort of you know like like what what do we do uh, in the context of experimentation? Because again, I I mm -hmm. you know we I actually want to build up to the to to a fuller discussion of complexity, but I need to educate myself first a little bit. And uh, it, it will happen later. But yeah. within the context of experimentation and in terms of what do we do, because let's let's not get disheartened about it, right? Well, I mean, so there are a couple of things. Um, so one of the things that you do within complexity um, is that you create what are called boundary conditions. So basically, it's like drawing a line in the sand. And you, you know, look your employee squarely in the eye and you basically go, if you cross that little bastard, you die, right? But within those boundaries, people are allowed to experiment. Mm -hmm. So if we are a company that is, let's say, you know, manufacturing software, then perhaps we won't allow our employees to run experiments creating, I don't know, sneakers, let's say. That's not to say that actually a software company couldn't create sneakers. It's just that you know we need to probably prioritize a bit depending on where our sort of strengths lie. Uh, but then again, you know within that you 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 basically need to understand you need to and that's going to be sort of specific to your company uh, what you, what kind of metrics or what kind of data or kind of vector measured you're looking at. But you need to to sort of have a a way of finding out okay what's working and what isn't working. You basically need what it means in practice that you need to have a strategy for scaling and a strategy for dampening. So when you're running your safe-to-fail experiments, and again, you know the way to work with the complexity is to run experiments, then you need to have some sort of deliberate strategy in place of, okay, so actually, what do we do when we discover something, either positive or negative? It's something that I occasionally see, you know, especially columnists, they claim things like, well, you know, the key to Apple's success was the fact that that Steve Jobs was just waiting for the next big thing, right? What they don't tell you, of course, is, you know, how to identify the next big thing or what to do in the meantime. 
because of course you can't if you have a company you can't really put a thousand employees on hold you know playing minecraft or whatever until someone somewhere has discovered the next big thing but not only that but you actually have to deliberately create the capacity to take advantage of the things that you find because you need to have a sort of a, you, have, you need to have the money to scale and there are different ways of obtaining that money of course you know if, if you have your own cash reserves or if you're looking for vc or whatever else but basically you need money in order to scale and if you have your own cash reserves then basically you're looking at all kinds of alternative costs because that money could be tied into you know investments or real estate or whatever else so it's always a bit more there's a bit more to it than um, people or you know columnists will sort of insinuate, let's say. Yeah. So that talk talks actually quite nicely about big, small corporates. Me. Yeah. You know, and there is a lot of writing about setting up a culture of experiments. But as you said, there there are different types of constraints, I guess, uh, yeah. that exist. You know, in large versus small. So, mm -hmm. like, how can we? And I think I've summarized some some of it, but. Um, if you were to, if I were to tell you, okay, for a corporate manager, uh, these are, and and I, I'm mindful, of course, of the not not giving, uh, you know, five five steps to success type of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Right? But a corporate manager should think about this versus a SME manager should think about this, or we can move on to a different context. Um. Well, I mean, SME versus big brand is is a fine dichotomy, uh, if you want to call it that. The principles are roughly the same. Uh, the the only so, sort of stuff that really matters ultimately is, is sort of scale and previous investments typically. So if you are an SME, then usually what's going to happen is that that the impact of something, the the variance of something, is going to be quite big, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you screw something up, then it might be your entire livelihood that depends on it. That that can be true, of course, for big brand, but usually big brands don't make that kind of big bets. Usually. Uh, rather, they are, you know, if something goes to hell, then yes, people might lose their jobs, but the entire company probably won't go bust. It happens that they do, of course, you know, we know that that yeah. sustainable business performance is sort of still a very difficult not to crack. But point being that that you tend to, as an SME, you tend to be more careful with things because your livelihood quite literally depends on it. Oftentimes, I mean, you don't have the same cash reserves and so on and so forth. So it's it's more to do with with the scale itself and the number of experiments you can run in parallel. But more than that, actually, it's to do with what kind of services or products you're selling, uh, or producing, or whatever else, and to what degree that's within you know again, ordered ordered or complex or something else. Because ultimately, that's going to determine you know how you approach things. Yeah. So is product versus service an interesting or relevant dichotomy? in this context? Um, it's an interesting one. It's a very difficult one. I mean, developing a product versus developing a service is kind of, I would argue at least, kind of different because the feedback loop loops are different and the stuff that is required uh, to develop each is different because if you're developing a product, then it's quite easy to see you know, whether it's working or not. Uh, if you're developing a service, a service, it needs to be within a field where actually you have some sort of competency. Um, because, I mean, hypothetically speaking, you could, of course, run agile experimentation within service development and go to your client to go, did this work or did that work or, you know, however else. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes the client might not necessarily be all too happy to do that. Um, whereas if you're developing, let's say, a you know, piece of software, 
then various iterations will be fine to a different degree. Um, but developing services is a completely, I, I would, from my experience anyways, it's a much more difficult endeavor typically. Um, if you're, at least if you're trying to do something new versus, um, product usually with product. Yeah. Usually with products, just the, like customers tend to have a plus minus, but, but companies tend to have a, a uh, an idea of what a product might be, right? So yeah. unless you're introducing something that is completely revolutionary, they have some sort of context. Yeah. Whereas if you're trying to uh, implement a new service, then basically need to uh, to upscale or train or educate your client first. Uh, and and if you could argue that's true for products as well, but usually that's a bigger hurdle to to sort of uh, pass in my from my experience. Do you agree with this statement? It's easier to see the quality of a product than to see the quality of a service. Yes, um, I would argue that I would probably agree with that um, because it tends to be more immediate versus the services. If it's something that, you know, if you're working with uh, the kind of stuff that I do with strategy and you're working with complexity, like I can predict roughly uh, what the impact is going to be. Uh, and usually you're going to save a lot of money. And as soon as you can save money, then people tend to listen yeah. because it's just a more efficient and more effective way of doing things because it is actually complexly coherent, yeah. which a lot of strategy isn't. But again, it, it's usually uh, it's usually more difficult to grasp and, and it's less tangible to a degree, whereas products are tend to be the opposite usually. So I would, you know, riffing off of that, mm -hmm. um, I would say another challenge in the service is, as you said, is the the length of the feedback. Yeah. A product, uh, you know, you like it, it either works or it doesn't, right? And in a way, and you can touch it in, in in most cases, and you 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 can see what it does, and you can see the sort of the quality. Um, a lot of services, and again, what what we do, right, is we we you know we create a strategy, and uh, the the feedback might be a year, might be two years, like who knows, right? And 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 so. Well, I mean, it's not on, it's not on that, but but typically, what happens if you use a product, then it's kind of like an order system. You do the thing, and then that thing happen, right? Or yeah, that's right. That's whatever right. else, right? Yeah. yeah. Whereas if you're working with professional services, then you're usually dealing with the complex, and it's really difficult to know whether the stuff that the work that you've done is sort of the the work that has produced a certain outcome. Um, I mean, consultants are very good at. at uh, taking credit for things and usually what happens is that if something goes according to not according to plan but if something turns out well then it's all of your doing and you know this is all mine and and we're all very proud and so on if something goes to hell then it's the fault of someone else you know usually or you know we're very yeah. good at, as human beings we're very good at, at sort of judging ourselves and our intentions and everyone else and their behavior exactly so so that's that's part of it but you know you have to be humble i mean I, for a recent uh, client, for example, you know, I helped them do some strategy stuff. And during my time there working with a client, the, the corporate valuation increased by, I think it was $4 billion, something like that, between 4 and $5 billion. Uh, and although my work had to do with, I mean, it had an impact on the valuation, I could either go, yeah, I did that. I created this, you know, $5 million worth of, of um, yep. value. Or I can just be humble and go, yeah, it probably wasn't me. I was part of it, but it's, you know, that was probably an ongoing thing and blah, 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 right? 
but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's uh, if you're selling these things, and of course, what the client wants to hear is, you know, if you do this, then that will happen. And have you done it in the past? The problem with complexity is because because everything is context specific and context is ever changing. It basically means that stuff you've done before it won't work again the same way in the future. So it's kind of a self-defeating argument if you then go to the client and go, yeah, I did this in the past, therefore it'll work for you in the same way, because it literally will not. Uh, and unfortunately, most of the messaging around, you know, modern day services is exactly like that, mm. uh, to the point, you know, there's, there was, a, it might have been in the halo effect, but I'm not sure. Anyway, there was a case study where somebody analyzed, like on the website of one of the, uh, one of the MBB uh, firms, you know, McKinsey Bain, uh, BCG, one of them, uh, basically they said that uh, clients who hire us outperform uh, the market by, you know, a factor of X, right? Yeah. The, uh, of five or 10, whatever. The, 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 the problem is, of course, I mean, there are a lot of problems, but, uh, you know, may, maybe only those companies can afford these guys or, yeah. you know, like who, did, does it mean that uh, the, you know, is, is that the causality? Like who knows, right? So, yeah, but, yeah. but anybody will claim anything that they can in order to, to sell, because, Ultimately, if you are, and we discussed this in, before as well, like not in this context, but um, the defensive decision making, right? If somebody yeah. is making a, a bet in a B2C context, which is most most of what we are dealing with is, is we're selling to companies, right? But mm -hmm. within a company, somebody makes a decision yeah. and they're making a decision to hire us as consultants, right? So they're making a lot of different bets. They're making a bet that we will solve their problem. They're also making a bet that we are the best at solving their problem and therefore they can stop their search, right? Or, or should, yeah. should they search? And, they're, and they're, they're, finally, they're making a bet on their career where the problem will get solved and it will promote their career. And if the problem doesn't get solved, well, it's going to be impacting yeah. negatively on, on their career. So that's a... Uh, Okay, discuss. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes. Uh, and, you know, IBM famously used to run a, a slogan that was no one ever got fired for buying an IBM. Um, and you could argue that the same, or at least used to be true for companies such as McKinsey or BCG. Because basically, in terms of def defensive decision making, if you hire McKinsey and they screw up, then basically you can blame McKinsey. If you hire someone like you or I, and we screw up, then basically you blame whoever hired us because it's kind of you know a left field decision, which is problematic because um, you know one you have your correlation versus causation issue with you know the BCG claim for example, um, which is also a, a, a claim which is true for best practice um, is that you know usually the the companies that use best practice and make it are the companies that are making it anyway. Um, actually, if you look at it in, in on a broader scale, if you look at work of, of uh, Dongan and Bloom, for example, um, then on average, it tends to, if you implement best practice across the board in everything, it tends to increase. Um, the best companies tend to, to outperform the laggard companies, but no more by no more than 10%, which is sort of significant, yes. But at the same time, you know, across, I think it was 770 companies on an individual le level, it can basically be nothing. Mm -hmm. And considering the, the amount of money needed, yeah. To invest in that kind of best practice then you know maybe that's not the way to go and also again if you're looking at going back to my original point if you're looking at uh order versus complexity in order where everything is you know if you do a then it'll lead to b then you can create best practice that's fine 
if you're working something that's complicated, you know, there's going to be more more than one ways of doing things. So you cannot use best practice, but you can use good practice. If you're in complexity, each practice will be novel. So it's kind of yeah. yeah. But at the same time, you know, if you're running if you're running some of the the big consultancies, they cannot guarantee success either. I mean, take a uh, something like the BCG portfolio matrix, for example, which is one of those famous yep. things. I mean, that's negatively correlated with profitability in companies. Mm -hmm. Of course, BCG won't tell you that. They'll just tell you, well, the companies that work with us are da-da-da-da-da, right? But nonetheless, that's true. And and a lot of times companies will hire, you know, other companies, professional service, whatever, thinking that it'll be, well, this is because everyone is work for everyone else, it'll work for us, and there are no guarantees that it will. You know, that's just a fact. So what is the value what is the value of consultants then? Like what where would you use them, right? What what do you do? Um the value of consultants is especially if you're working with complicated contexts, because you know, you need basically expertise in order to, to determine, you know, what of B C D, whatever else, uh, will happen. The thing is that if you're working with an ordered system, you can use uh, inductive or deductive reasoning. So either that's, you know, extrapolating one thing to many or many things to one. But again, you can't do that in complexity. Uh, and one other, another reason why you shouldn't use, you shouldn't expect consultants to be able to, to solve complex problems in and of themselves is because they haven't worked with the organization long enough to develop what is called abductive reasoning or abduct, abductive logic, which basically is the science of hunches. So if you work for long enough in an organization, you kind of get a feel for what might happen and what might work and so on. Yeah. A consultant will not have that feeling or that feel. So if you're a consultant uh, and you do work with, with the complex things, actually you need to run a kind of a, a different kind of diagnosis, uh, diagnostics running into a company or working with a company. And you need to take advantage of the, the knowledge that already exists. And there are a lot of ways to do that. It's, it's, um, Kind of what I a lot of what I do is is in that field uh, again helping companies not necessarily solve complex problems but but manage them because the thing is that although you can move certain things from complex to complicated we cannot expect to solve complex problems because that basically presumes that there would be a root cause mm -hmm. and in in complex systems there is no root cause it's, again it's not causal it's dispositional which is an interesting one as well if you're a traditional strategist and you work with, with you know root cause analysis and the five whys for example because of course there will not be a single root cause uh, i have problems with the five whys anyways because anyways because it sort of presumes that the perfect solutions will always be five layers down which is a bit weird to me but basically the traditional techniques uh will not work uh in complexity so you need a consultant who understands complexity if you're looking for something that's more stable and actually sustainable and long-term, as opposed to a short-term thing, short thing that may or may not work and you'll have, probably have to get someone else and so on. And also, uh, sorry, as so a final note on that, just because I can't resist sort of, you know, getting a, a knife in, but so I've had clients where um, they've hired, let's say big consultancies and they would then, and basically the consultancy has left behind them a 600 page document. A strategy of 600 pages or whatever else and what happens then is that the client calls me and goes hey can you reduce this into five pages please yeah because that's the other thing as well a lot of consultants i'm not just talking about big big name consultancies but consultants in general um because everything is complex and they're not really sure they would just produce you know these war and peace style documents that basically cover all bases 
So um, if something goes to hell, if something goes well, they can just go, well, it was in there somewhere, you know, the footnote on page exactly. seven. Exactly, they can't be wrong. Yeah, exactly. That's right. right. They're just covering their own yeah. asses, basically. Well, all, all everything is, is risk management in a way, yep. right? In some shape or form. And we know that people are risk averse, right? It's it's not, you know, we value 100, losing $100, uh, you know, is much more painful than winning $100, right? Yeah. Which, which, which in a way is some, something related to something that you said before. Cost out projects are easy to sell in a way because, you know, you have this, you're wasting that money, it, it's hurting yeah. you, you know, I can reduce that cost. Uh, value generation projects are, are more difficult because it's all, you know, like you, you don't have that, but you could have this, right? Yeah. It's like, well, are you sure? Well, no, but I can increase the odds that you will have that, mm -hmm. but, you know, I'm not sure, and, and nor are you, right? So in in a way that's, that's uh, it could be 10x, it could be 20x, but these are different types of bets that people have to take. Yeah, yeah. And, and also, I mean, one thing that's worth considering that as well is that, um, so for startups, uh, usually you're looking at that that upside um, especially if you're you know looking to scale quickly and grow quickly and this is not necessarily a good thing because what usually happens is that your customer acquisition costs are just way too high especially when compared to the customer lifetime values yeah. and either everyone ignores it but usually someone someone somewhere down the line is going to ask for sort of a path to profit but uh, it, it basically becomes a sort of game of hot potato where your investors are just looking to dump the uh, the shares that they own or the, the part of the company that they own on someone else. And then ideally somewhere down the lines can become profitable. And, you know, that's, yeah, it's just a, that's just the name of the game, I suppose. Um, but there is as well, one thing that, you know, we were talking about data originally or early on. And one thing that is absolutely true is that you can actually, you can use data to drive the value of the organization. And this is something that startups do a lot, especially within tech, obviously. Um, but basically for data to be, uh, to increase the value of an organization as an intangible, it basically needs to be proprietary to that company. So basically you need to collect the data and needs to be exclusive to you. Um, and the other thing is that you need to be able to prove it, prove that it has some sort of economic value. You know, whether that's cost efficiency, scales, um, improving product services, whatever else. So just collating, collecting data and, and experimenting off of that data can actually have a, a sort of a positive impact on your overall valuation. The problem occurs then is, okay, so how much do you rely on that data? The sort of the balance between claiming that this data drove that or using this data for that versus actually running more experiments, not necessarily because of the data, but because you need to try stuff out and the upside of that and so on. So again, you know, we're coming to a situation where things are a bit more, well, more difficult in practice than, than theorists would have you believe. Um, but there are many ways of, of using data, many ways of using um, or driving valuations and growing this, that, the other. It's just that, again, you need to probably find somewhere to drive profit down the line uh, as well. And, you know, if you run these kinds of experiments, you know, to your point about the cost savings and so on, if you run these kinds of experiments, then if you do it properly, you're probably going to be more efficient and more effective. If you do it wrongly, then you're just going to waste money, probably. Um, okay, so, uh, you know, to, to wrap up this section, because I think we're running at you know well, yeah, yeah. otherwise we could talk for several more hours experiments for strategic value right so we talked about operational mm -hmm. efficiency a lot but uh, you know where uh, the, there is that 
efficiency versus effectiveness, right? And this yep. is where operational efficiency is, is, is more on the efficiency. You know, strategy is more on the effectiveness side. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe, maybe not, but but it's a good way of thinking. Yeah. I think. I, I yeah. mean. So what what do we do with that? Okay. So how how do we can we use experiments? What kind of experiments? And sort of you know for the in, within the the strategic decisions, keeping in mind, of course, that I think both you and I know that, uh, and, and as well as the listeners, that you know what what's uh, what strategy in one context could be could could be tactics in another, right? Yeah. So it's even even how do you define strategy? But you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say because the thing is that as well as if you uh, so basically broadly speaking you have two kinds of, of strategic approaches. So you have deliberate strategy, which is your formal strategic planning. Then you have emergent strategy, which is basically experimentation and, and finding things out in retrospect. And you know this is the pattern of what we did. And the former is sort of the traditional top bottom versus the, the latter is the bottom top. And the fact of the matter is that some strategic decisions will be, they will appear whether you've sort of consciously taken them or not. So. What I mean by that is that that let's imagine that you are a salesperson um, and you have your target audiences and this are, these are the markets we're going to go for and so on. But you actually you decide to go for someone else, a new country, whatever it might be. And actually it turns out to work. And your colleagues see this and they sort of follow suit. And all of a sudden the organization as a whole has entered into a new market, which is a strategic decision, a strategic move, obviously, right? Yeah. But it's not being sort of consciously, deliberately taken from top brass. It's actually, it's coming from below. So there is that aspect to it, uh, as, you, as you very much, as you correctly sort of described. But in terms of experimentation in, well, let's call it traditional strategic approaches, right? So your typical, the strategy person is the person up top, higher up the food chain, um, running the thing. Yep. Some things are going to be sort of open to experimentation and parallel experimentation, and some things are not. So what I would argue um, is that if you're a strategist and you're facing a, a problem, really what you need to do is you need to break it down into its sort of ontological pieces. What I mean by that is you need to try to unearth what parts of the problem are within the ordered domains, um, complexity, and potentially chaos. And there are ways of doing that. You can use the Kinevin framework, for example, which I, I do myself, which is very good. I have also developed my own way of doing it on top or additional things. But basically, you need to understand what parts are what. And then you need to take that, take those parts and solve, to solve them accordingly against the backdrop of your specific organization. Uh, and what I mean by the latter is that even if you're looking at the kind of, oh, yes, we know that this is a complex thing and actually we need to run these kinds of experiments and so on. And really emergent strategy would be the best way of doing things. It might be that, you know, one, again, you need to deliberately set aside funds typically or prepare for, for uh, capital acquisition. Or it might be that your shareholders are expecting you to draw up a formal document because they want to know what, you, what you're doing within the next year and, and going, oh, we're just going to run experiments and see what happens, right? It's not necessarily going to cut it. Yeah. Um, with that said, I mean, I was talking to a, a Japanese CFO and he said, well, the, the liberal strategy is what we present to our shareholders, versus the, whereas the emergent strategy is what we actually do. But my point is that there will be all kinds of things that you need to add on top of that. Um, and you can call them constraints, if you like. Um, constraints theory is, is a topic in and of itself, which I'm actually writing a book about. 
but you need to understand your specific context, unfortunately. So again, the, the way that I would approach things is just to break them down as best you can into the various pieces. And of course, this means you need to understand complexity and yada, yada, yada. But anyway, uh, and then solve them based on your specific context and um, sort of corporate requirements, let's say. Um, because that that's just the, the only way to, to answer the question, really, because everything is going to be in context specific. Okay, cool. So uh, great stuff. We'll get back to your things in a minute. Yep. I would like to basically leave the listener with a homework of a kind, you know, because I was uh, early on in my career, I was being trained to be a uh, an academic, a professor. I, I would have been teaching people and, and I did do a lot of tutoring, teaching at, you know, at the grad school. So that's still in me and I kind of want to want to give homework. What I wanted to leave within the, the, the context of a of the episode is what would be the things that the listener could do, read, listen to? Mm -hmm. Where would you send them to next? Right. So it depends on your starting point to a degree. Uh, I think you need to understand sort of strategy basics first. So I'd read probably something like um, Good Stride, Bad Strategy by Rumelt. How Brands Grow, obviously, by Byron Sharp to understand markets. But then on top of that, once you have a, a basic understanding, you need, probably need to read, I would argue anyway, some stuff about complexity. And a very good starting point, because it basically summarizes everything uh, in a very practical manner, is to start with um, any work by Dave Snowden uh, of Kinevin or Cognitive Edge. So you can go on YouTube and find that stuff or go to Cognitive Cognitive's dash edge.com yep. i think it is so basically dave snowden the Kinevin framework is spelled c-y-n-e-f-i-n uh and it's uh all to do with the practicalities of the stuff that i've been talking about and he will he uh, is a very good uh keynote speaker as well so there are a bunch of uh, assets on youtube that you can just watch um and then again just to sort of reiterate a previous point Take that and apply it to your specific context and what sort of is feasible within your organization. Because it's not enough that you understand it; then you need to explain it to other people. And uh, it it is quite a, a big shift in, in how to think. And then as well, I mean, not to toot my own horn too much, but I am introducing what is called complexity coherent strategy, and I'm actually writing a sort of introductory guide on that, which will be up yeah. on my website relatively soon. So that that could be worth um, looking at. It's it's a recap of the stuff that I've been talking about in a very very short form, but it it does sort of set the scene a bit. Nice. Okay, so that's a clear educational call to action uh, for for the listener. Okay. Yep. In terms of your own stuff, so you mentioned the book, you mentioned the guide, your newsletter. I would recommend. It might be the only one that I actually pay money to. Oh, that's very kind of you. It's one of those things where I use it and I recommend it to others, yeah. which also deals with these topics. So I, th I think it's a great newsletter. So what do you want to plug? What, what's, what's happening in this space that you think would be of benefit to the listeners? Um, I think you that know, you're doing. Yeah, that, that I'm doing. Um, well, the newsletter is one. I'm also writing a book, which the name of which I, well, it kind of reveals the topic and I'm not ready to do that just yet. I will say that it's due with how to solve these problems. Uh, and it's a completely new way of approaching strategy that is complexity coherence. 
that's coming out in what Q2 next year, I think. Awesome. Um, and then I am doing a couple of talks. So for example, I'm doing the marketing festival, which is a big one uh, in September. So I'll be online in which I will be talking about these things more in depth. And, you know, stay on my, I, I publish things on my website every now and again, but usually the, the newsletter, and then you can find me in uh, Marketing Week every now and again, too. But yeah, those are big things. And then, yeah, and then the last one is just to, to plug a, a podcast of my own, which I'm building at the moment, which is called uh, One Idea, Five Minutes. Um, and in that, we are going to be having people on who are given five minutes to basically explain an idea that they have. Uh, it's not going to be sales pitches. I'm very careful with that. But basically, any sort of coherent, interesting idea, five minutes, that's it. Uh, and that's going to cover a couple of things that I've been talking about, but also like all kinds of interesting ideas because we have a bunch of really cool people lined up. So that, that might be worth checking out. And the uh, two things that I will add yep. to that on, on, on your behalf is uh, uh, people can always follow you on LinkedIn and Twitter. And I think you're one of the more entertaining Twitter accounts that well you thank know, you very much are, yeah are to follow Twitter is a good one I, yeah I, I do post on Twitter LinkedIn every now and again but it's just LinkedIn has a tendency to um, not to be too rude but it's kind of like amateur hour a lot of the time and you have a lot of people spouting nonsense which is just a bit grating uh, but I do occasionally every now and again I publish stuff on LinkedIn uh, my problem with LinkedIn is 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 a, is a lot of positivity not enough robust uh, discussion. Yeah, my problem with Twitter is is uh, possibly too much robust discussion, but without any context and detail, you know, mm. because there's only so so it kind of disintegrates into just a shouting match. But LinkedIn is just kind of. I come from an academic background where, as as a grad student, there would be a professor presenting, and I could just say, "Okay, that doesn't make any sense. Defend yourself, right?" Yeah, and it's not something that is welcome on on LinkedIn or or, or you know, business world for that. Yeah, I, I think you're I think you're absolutely right on that. It's a very good observation. Uh, I did write a piece on LinkedIn, actually, specifically for LinkedIn, which was called uh, "Where Are the Grownups?" <laughs> but basically, I pointed out that that. Um, the LinkedIn discourse, unfortunately, is, and this is quite, I mean this in literal terms, it is actually dumbing down the industry. And what I mean by literal terms is that researchers actually discovered that for the first time we are becoming dumber as a species, our average IQ, although IQ is not the best measure of things, but it's actually declining by about seven points per generation. And it can be, or at least scientists are believing it to be partially explainable by the online culture and the fact that you know it's instant gratification and people are not uh, sort of taking the time to actually think about what they're writing in a sort of you know they're not reading the articles they're reading the headlines so to speak and that's both in literal well, and metaphorical correct. terms yeah plus there is you know now that anybody can write or say stuff there's much less editorial process that's happening yeah. and, and and i think in some cases gatekeepers are actually are actually useful. yeah i mean christopher hitchens one famous once famously said that everyone's got a book in them but for most that's where it should stay uh which is kind of true and you do see a lot of but then of course as well like the the algorithms for social media sites are optimized for you to uh spend time there basically right that's correct um and yeah and so comments like or content that that has um, you know specific CTAs like do you agree and comments then where people are just trying to sort of be part of the click where they just go hundred percent agree or whatever else right that tends to pop up more than than the content which doesn't get the same kind of engagement uh, would which is problematic as well although 
understandable. Well, the one thing about the book, I would say, is you could use it in, as an experiment and just get it out there. And, you know, like people, like, why yeah. not? I actually, you know, I actually think like, right, you know? Yeah. Let the market decide. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, and the difference between, because I, I did write the Stratagem Polymy or the AKA the Castle Manifesto. That one was, in lack of better terms, almost written for myself. Like there was, there's no filter there. It's very dense. And although I explain things, it's sort of, you know, keep up, right? Yep. And it's not a one coffee read as much as a two bottle gin read. But the book is actually going to be targeted or targeting a much broader mass. So we are going to be talking about similar content. I'm writing it with Gary uh, Force. Um, we are going to be discussing complexity and constraints theory and all these things that are really, really difficult, but they're necessary to sort of prove the thing we're getting to. But we are going to be explaining it in such a way that everyone can sort of keep up and understand it. If you were to teach a course, you could make that a compulsory reading. Yeah, I mean, there there may or may not be courses on the way because I've been approached. Nice. Excellent. Um, the final thing that I wanted to say is that on this pod, the idea is that we take the topics that we discuss seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. Yeah. And with that, we'll uh, aggregate what uh, JP said about, you know, and, and we'll market this, this, this particular episode with, do you agree that everybody's becoming dumber because of LinkedIn? <laughs> and uh, that's, I think that's the takeaway that I got. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's um, if one were to take one takeaway, it's this, you know, understand your context, understand human beings. It's the, the complexity scientific slash com uh, complexly coherent strategic angle. Let's try that with all my teeth in my mouth. <laughs> it's very much different from the old view in that the old view tends to be that organizations can be treated as machines. Whereas the complexity-based view is that organizations should be treated as ecosystems. And we need to understand, within that, we need to understand not just the, the financial and strategic sides, but actually sort of evolutionary psychology and so on. And when we're talking about, you know, experimentation and so on and so forth, a lot of the time people tend to say things like, well, you know, we want to have a culture that allows for failure, stuff like that. And that's fine. That's good. It's, it's just, how do you do that in practice? We usually have managers who won't accept failure. And also the problem is that you, if we understand human beings, we understand that, that if you're telling people to, you know, talk about their failures or celebrate their failures, people will gain that. Yeah. So basically they will go, yes, well, my failure actually, it's kind of like, you know, when you're, uh, we have job interviews and they ask you like, yep. okay, what's your biggest weakness? Yep. And people go, oh, it's, I'm too good at my work <laughs> or my job or something like that. Right. Yeah. If you tell people to celebrate their failures and basically people are going to do the same thing. What you should do is you should run safe to fail experiments and sort of allow failures to exist within reason. So you need to understand that based on your overall risk profile as an organization, because if 99% if of your, um, if your experiments um, are failing, then that's just not financially viable, uh, which yeah. is also a point that I raised when I, I recently wrote a critique of, of Mark Pritchard of Procter & Gamble when he said that his marketers should treat Procter & Gamble as if it were a, a startup. The problem is that if 95 to 97% of, of startups fail, 
you can't have that failure rate within an organization. It's just not yeah. financially viable. Uh, so, you know, we need to we need to encourage experimentation. We need to be able to run safe to fail experiments, but they need to be safe to fail. In other words, they need to be, they cannot, you cannot invest that much money or that much risk into something yeah. that you cannot afford to lose. And if, as long as we do that and we see people as people, we'll be fine. But let's stay away make, from make, platitudes. No, it makes a lot of sense, uh, which, Actually, this this triggered another thought that the season two of this thing will be dedicated to all things. You know, when when this season is experimental, the season two will be all mental. Hmm. It will be about biases and stuff. And a lot of the discourse and experimentation in the business literature kind of assumes that we understand that most humans are not rational, but it's the other humans, like our customers, for example. So we run experiments about figuring out what they really need. But there is no discussion about the experimenter themselves having, mm. uh, you know, being slightly less than rational, having all sorts of different different things. And, and that speaks to exactly your point. Like if, if, if people who run experiments, like it's all good and well to say, okay, let's all be scientists, but, but let's face it, the, the most people in business are not scientists and don't have that kind of, not yeah. even, even scientists are not really that rational. Uh, so everybody comes in with their own, you know, biases and fears and ego and whatnot, and and I think that's a really critical thing. But 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 that kind of requires a complete deep dive in and yeah, of itself. Yeah, really yeah I mean, topic. because it is a, it is quite a significant problem for traditional strategic making or what one might call formal strategic planning, which is that usually strategic decisions are not only involving a lot of people, but also involving sort of vast sums of money, which basically means that um, careers are tied to those decisions, right? So a lot of people will defend their decision regardless of whether it's working or not, just because if, yeah. if they admit failure, then all of a sudden, you know, everyone will know it. Um, it's actually also as a very Quick side note, uh, when you're looking at um, media investments, for example, is that when you when you go into companies and you explain, for example, market loss and the, the importance of net reach and so on, um, basically it, it can easily be interpreted as demonstrating what why the stuff that they've done in the past is wrong, which is fine in and of itself if the organization is sort of humbled enough to take that on board. And I've worked with clients where that absolutely was the case. And they were just like, oh, we don't care two shits about anything. We just want to improve. So that's fine. But you need to realize that when you're doing that, you're based someone, someone somewhere down the line, whether that's a CMO or head of media or whatever, has made the decisions to make those investments, which basically means that when you're proving that they've been wrong, you're calling them wrong in front of the entire organization. So they're going to know it and everyone else can know it. Um, and so they may either be reluctant to take your advice on board or agree with it or um, just take you on board in the first place. Uh, and, and stuff like that does matter. You know, people have, they will game the system to their advantage and that can be positive or usually not positive. But my point is that that you always be up against that. That's the big thing as well. I mean, you're talking about, because all organizations are complex adaptive systems. And, mm. you know, I used the ant example. And obviously, human beings are much more complex than ants because they have agency. Mm. And that's the thing when you're working with these kind of managerial questions is that you have to understand that people will have agency and they will not do what they're told. Um, it's also one of the reasons why, you, you know, I mentioned this, the, the sign kind of organizational requirements, even if you're working with emergence strategy. So uh, 
you need to create the mandate to enforce change as well. So if you're working with global strategy, for example, if you don't have the mandate to enforce change, then not, none of the regions are going to follow your or is going to follow your advice. So there's that as well. But again, you know, everything is there's always nuance to things. And yeah. but ultimately you just you need to understand that you're working with people with all that entails. Excellent. I think that's a perfect, perfect time to or perfect point to wrap it up. Cool. Thank you. My pleasure. I hope I wasn't too all over the place. That's okay. Well, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's experimental. Thank you for listening. Please rate and review us wherever you're listening to this right now. Tell your friends about us in real life or on social. And give Premium a try. Thank you. Until next time, stay well. <laughs>